As we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Oh Lord, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making the simple wise. Your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. Your commandments are pure, enlightening our eyes. The fear of you, Lord, is clean, enduring forever. Your rules are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than fine gold and sweeter than honey. By them your servants are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So teach that word to us now by your Spirit, and show us Christ, we pray, in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, we just sang a portion of that psalm, and we want to think about this psalm in connection with our uh, article of the Belgic Confession this evening, Article 37. Psalm 103 is one of the great favorite psalms of the Dutch Reformed churches, and so we want to think about this and meditate on this psalm together. Uh, Psalm 103, this is a psalm of David, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, You can see why that would be a favorite psalm of many, not just the Dutch Reformed churches, uh, but a psalm that speaks of the way the Lord does not remember our sins against us, the way the Lord is forgiving and compassionate, the way the Lord is not like us. He is not 
here today and gone tomorrow, the way men are here today and gone tomorrow, our Lord is steadfast forever in His commitment to His people. Uh, it's a wonderful comfort to God's people to, to know this um, and to know that hope awaits all the people of God, this redeeming, forgiving, loving God towards us, that we have nothing to fear because He has forgiven us our sins. Um, whenever we think about the last times and we think about the end, we think about the things that are to be when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, uh, we can get very excited about all of the things that follow the judgment all of the vindication of God's people, all the glories of heaven, Uh, but we sometimes can wonder whether we want to go through the judgment to get there. Um, Is there a way we could just have all the nice things that are promised when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory without having to face the judgment? I don't know if you feel at times as if that's the cloud that passes between the sunshine of that day um, and the day as you think about it. It was interesting in our past classes meetings that we had a couple weeks ago to hear from men in the ministry who had grown up in sort of broadly evangelical churches and who really wrestled from a young age with the reality of knowing that there's a judgment coming and worrying how it will be for them in the judgment Um, and how that really marked their early Christian walk, this fear of the coming of the Lord. Um, and I, I had that on my mind when we were thinking about, you know, the, the, the judgment word from Proverbs this morning. I thought, I hope that while we have to do justice to the judgment as God points it out in his word, that it doesn't leave people despairing of the hope that Christ offers for salvation. Um, because the, the amazing thing that our Reformed confessions are very clear about is that for Christians, there is nothing to worry about in the judgment. I think one of the most remarkable questions in the Heidelberg Catechism is, how does the the fact that Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Um, It's almost as if they knew they had to kind of give you the answer in the question before they started. And I wonder how many people in our days would look to the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's coming to judge the living and the dead and find that to be a comforting proposition. Um, But God wants his people to understand it as a comfort to know that God is coming for his people and not against us. Uh, Because when we understand it in that way, we can understand the glory of what is coming in the judgment. It makes meeting the Lord, whether we have to meet him when we die in this life or when he comes again in glory, not something that fills us with fear, but fills us with anticipation. Um, Now, I preached in Anaheim last week, and so I don't remember if I used this analogy with you, so if I did a couple weeks ago, I apologize, but I think it's still a good one, so even if it's a repeat, um, I think it'll help. But as John Newton reached the end of his life, did I tell you this already? Does this sound familiar? Yeah, okay. Yeah, see, someone someone was paying attention. Um, But as he reached the end of his life, somebody was saying, you know, to him, how do you feel about this? That you know, you're, you're, and he said, it's like I have my bags packed and I'm looking out the window all the time waiting for my ride to come. I'm so eager to go. Um, that's someone who understands the saving work of Christ and understands there's nothing between them and their God. There's nothing to fear in the judgment. There's nothing to fear in our personal approach to our God. And it's, it's a passion of our, of our forms. It's a passion of our religion to know that you can know for certain that you are right with God so that you don't have a judgment to fear. 
So you know that coming judgment is just going to confirm what the Lord promised you in this life. Um, That he is going to come to save, not to destroy. Um, That our sins really have been forgotten, have been forgiven, have been covered by the death of his son. That's the glory of, of, of what Psalm 103 teaches. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. There's no further point that it can go from east to west. Right? He's cast them behind his back. He remembers them no more. That's the wonderful testimony of, scripture, of the scriptures over and over again. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Or Isaiah 38, 17, But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. There's a wonderful promise of sin forgotten by our God, covered by our God, forgiven by our God, put away by our God. The unfortunate thing is that so many people think that all of these sins that have been uncovered and put away will somehow be recast against us in the final judgment somehow presented against us again. Um, That's why I think it's important that we rightly understand the judgment and why we're so helped by Article 37 as an explanation of what we find in God's Word to know what's going to happen at the end. To get a good preview on what happens in the final judgment and to know that those who are safe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who put their faith and trust in Him and what He's accomplished on the cross, have nothing to fear in the judgment to come. And so what we, I want to think more about the judgment this evening. I know we talked about it a couple, a bit two weeks ago, but um, I want to return to that subject um, as this is such an important doctrine for us to understand. And I want to think a little bit about why we misunderstand the final judgment. That's where I want to begin. Why do we misunderstand the final judgment? Then how do we properly understand the final judgment? And then how do we properly react to the final judgment? Uh, so that's what I want to think about, misunderstanding it, understanding it properly, and properly reacting to it. Now, where do these misunderstandings about the final judgment come from? Um, I think there are texts sort of taken out of their context that tend to mislead people about what the final judgment will be like. Um, and I think the misunderstandings stem from taking verses in isolation without thinking about their context and how they come to the people of God. Uh, The first text I think people can be guilty of this is Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, where Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And there can be this sense of, okay, every, you know, I start to catalog the careless words I've spoken, that list gets pretty long pretty quick. Um... Do I really, there's going to be sort of played before me a movie of my life where I have to watch every careless thing I said? I'm not interested in attending that movie. Um, I don't want to see that showing. Um, and so people have kind of have gotten this idea that, that this is what's going to come to all people. But I think we have to pay careful attention to who Jesus is talking to in that passage. He's interacting with Pharisees in Matthew 12. Pharisees in particular who have said things like, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Um, An accusation about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's a few verses after Jesus has said, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? This is a word of judgment that comes particularly directed at the Pharisees for what they have said carelessly about the Son of God and the Messiah. And what is Christ's word to them? On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Right, Just like we saw this morning, wisdom has but to say, all we'll need to do is review your faults. It'll be very clear that you've gotten what you deserved. Um, Jesus is talking particularly to the Pharisees and their unbelief. This is a calling to the wicked to be reminded of the account they will one day have to give. Now, that doesn't mean that we can just sort of, no, I don't need to worry about that verse anymore. Um, It reminds us that careless speech is a characteristic of the wicked, right? That this is something we are not to be engaged in because carelessness is a feature of the old way of life, not the current way of life. Now, the righteous should not be engaged in this kind of careless speech. One of the things we learn in Proverbs is that fools are careless The wise are careful. Proverbs 14, 16, we read, One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Uh, Putting off these things is is a sign that we are leaving that life behind and putting on the kind of virtuous, righteous way of life that God has prepared for us. Uh, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9, For this very reason, make every effort effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Um, Even though we we know that this doesn't talk about the judgment when it comes to Pharisees, it does talk about the kind of life we are to avoid. Knowledge leads to self-control. Ignorance leads to carelessness. And if we don't have these things in the right way, we're going to not be as fruitful as we ought to be for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is certainly a lesson to be learned here, but the principal thrust of what Jesus says in Matthew 12 is that the wicked are going to have to give an account for the careless words they've spoken. So this doesn't talk about the sort of the righteous in the judgment. This is a particular thing aimed at the wicked in the judgment. So I think a misunderstanding of that verse has led to misunderstandings about the judgment and what comes in the judgment. I think another verse this is true of is Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. So here is the judgment according to works, right? According to what they had done. That's where the judgment goes. Everyone is going to be judged by the books. Open it up and see what you've done. Then that's going to be recounted. Um, Is that what we're to think of in the judgment of the righteous? Well, it's important that people who recognize these things recognize that there are two books in that verse. Um, There is a book of deeds, and that's one book 
Um, those are, that's the judgment for those who are not in the book of life. Uh, but there is another book, not the book of deeds, but the book of life. And what does Revelation tell us in Revelation 17, 8? What is written in the book of life? Not deeds, but names. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, there's a book of deeds by which the wicked are judged according to what they've done. And there's a book of names of people who are in the book on account of what Jesus has done. Um, and so there are two judgments, one for the wicked according to deeds, one for the righteous according to the saving work of God, to the saving work of the Lamb who has cleansed them from their sins. And so actually this verse, I think, teaches us there are two kinds of judgment, one for the wicked and one for the righteous, who are judged not according to their work, but according to God's election and their faith in Christ. Um, so I think misunderstanding can spring from that verse. I think misunderstanding also can spring from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And now, this one is definitely addressed to believers, so we can't duck it that way. Um, it's definitely coming to us. But again, context is so important. Paul is not talking particularly about the judgment, so to speak, but he's talking about this more broadly to remind God's people um, and to stir them up to good works and a reminder that God rewards the good that's done in this life. Uh, so hear that verse now as it comes to us in its context. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil." Um, this whole verse springs from hope and courage and encouragement. It doesn't, Paul's not throwing all of a sudden a wet blanket over it here at the end. He's stirring God's people up by way of reminder. God remembers the good that we do. The good that we do will be remembered before his throne. That's to stir us up to good works, to help us strive for holiness. It's an encouragement that God gives us. Like when he talks about what will happen in Matthew 25, that the righteous will be separated from the goats and he'll address them and talk to them about the good that they've done in his name, that he has borne witness to, even when they can't remember themselves doing it. Um, when you did it to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. The good works that we do are remembered by our God. And they are remembered for us, not because we've earned something from him, but because He is a gracious God. He remembers kingdom service. Um, that's one of the wonderful truths that comes across in the book of Malachi after there are so many ways in which God's people have failed Him. And then we read in Malachi 3, 6, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. Uh, our good deeds are remembered by the Lord in heaven. That book of remembrance was common back then. You might remember the book of remembrance in Esther when the king couldn't sleep one night and wanted to read through the book and then read that Mordecai had done things for the kingdom and had never been rewarded for them. 
Um, there was a book of remembrance of people who had served the kingdom. And it's wonderful that Malachi 3.6 says God keeps a record of remembrance of people who've served his kingdom. The Lord is not so unjust as to forget what you've suffered for his name, what you've done in his name, not because you've been trying to earn something from him, but because you love him um, and desire to serve him out of gratitude for all that he's done for us. God is such a gracious God that he not only gives us the spirit so that we may work, but then he crowns his gifts by rewarding the good we do. It's just a measure of his gratitude um, and not a cause for us to misunderstand that verse or apply it to our harm. This is what comes of taking verses out of their context and not understanding them in a broader theological framework. That's what allows us to think of the, of the final judgment not as something we ought to look forward to and actually long for, but as something to be feared. That's why we don't want to misunderstand it. We want to have a proper understanding of what will happen. What should believers think about when they think about the final judgment? Well, the Belgian Confession is so helpful that their total redemption will then be accomplished. They will receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. Their innocence will be openly recognized by all, and they will see the terrible vengeance that God will bring on the evil ones who tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. One of the really interesting aspects of the Belgian Confession, as one commentator said, it breathes the spirit of ongoing martyrdom. You can hear that these Christians are being martyred when this is being written. Now think of this again. Let me read that again and think of this as a martyr's confession, a martyr's hope. When, when Christ comes, their total redemption will then be accomplished. They will receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. Their innocence will be openly recognized by all, and they will see the terrible vengeance that God will bring on the evil ones who tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. The martyrs are hoping in a God who will vindicate them. Hoping that even though what they are doing for Him is not seen or understood now, there is a day coming when it will be seen for what it is. It will be understood for what it is. And the evil ones will have justice returned to them for what they've done to the kingdom of their Son. One commentator put it poignantly. He said, it's as if these words in Article 37 of the Belgian Confession were written, were written by the light of burning martyrs. Um, this is a martyr's confession for Christians for whom martyrdom was an everyday experience. Um, not a theory, but a real and true experience. And what it breathes is the spirit of those who hoped in the justice of God who knew that there was a king in heaven who would see that righteousness would be done, who would see that justice would be done for his people. Another commentator said they lived in the unshaken conviction that God's militant and suffering church would one day shine in the glory of the Father as the church triumphant to the Redeemer's unending praise. That's why it's interesting to read our statement on the end times and to read the Westminster Confession statement on the end times. It's good theologically. I'm not, I mean, I am Reformed, so I tend to pick on Presbyterians anyway. It's my default. But it's a good statement on the end times. The problem with it is it, it's, 
it's precise, but it doesn't have this passion. Because they were meeting at the behest of the government when they wrote it. The government had called them. They were meeting in a chapel, in public. They were putting these things together with the blessing of the government at the time. This was written and then wrapped on a rock and thrown over the fence of the king so that he might read it because they knew there was no safe way to send it to him because they didn't want to be martyred on account of it. Um, This is a very different document. It's precise, but it's also passionate. It's, as one person said, no doubt the most impressive, heart-stirring, and soul-moving of the 37 articles. Um, because it has such hope in the vindication, in the, in the coming judgment of the Lord that can't be had today, but will be had one day. That's the hope in which they lived. That was the purpose for which they wanted this picture of the final judgment taught. Not so that believers would live in fear of what that judgment would mean for them, but so they would realize what the purpose is of the judgment as God has presented it to his people in his word. That at that time it will vindicate God's people. God's people will be vindicated as his servants. The Lord will be vindicated as a just God. Right? Because we recognize as God's people that not only are we being attacked in this world, but the name of the Lord is being attacked in this world. And that hurts us almost more than anything else. Just happened to listen to a sermon this week where somebody said they had been in a, in a Muslim country and had seen a picture of Jesus bowing down before Muhammad. And there there was a memory of this, this Anglican who had seen this and who had said, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be able to bear to live in a world where that exists if I didn't know there would be judgment for that. There would be justice for that. That someone who thought that Jesus bows down to anyone would not have to suffer the blasphemy and the judgment that should come from something like that. He said, I couldn't stand to live in a world where that was not a reality. To know that there is a king in heaven who will do right That's what God's people need to know. He will vindicate them and he will vindicate his own name. Right? All those Psalms that, like Psalm 10, that people are sitting there saying, there is no God. And if there is a God, he doesn't see. And if he sees, he doesn't care. That's a terrible thing to say. Where is your God? Right? That's what the wicked love to say. Think of Jesus on the cross. I thought the Father loved you. Why don't you call out to your Father? Have Him save you. Come down from your cross. We'll believe in you. You saved other people. Can't you save yourself? Doesn't that just bother you? Bothers me. Um, And if I were not as holy, I'm not as holy as Jesus, that's why I want someone to get burned down for that. Um, There's too much of the sons of thunder in me. Someone needs to get smoked for this, right? I mean, this can't just stand. And the, and the Lord is saying, there is a judgment coming. These things don't stand. I'm, I've, I know exactly what's going on in the world. I see it. I feel it. The Lord feels the indignation of this every day. And the hope that God's people live in is it comes to an end where God has seen enough 
And God comes to vindicate his name and his people in the world. That's the purpose of the judgment. For God's people to know that God is going to vindicate his name. And he's going to vindicate his people who have entrusted themselves to his name. And that's why there only, can only be two proper reactions to the coming judgment. If you're against the Lord, you need to be afraid. Right? Part, of, part of the thing about the judgment is when we preach it, we want people to be afraid if they are not in a right standing with the Lord. Part of the judgment should make people afraid. Right? The wicked should be afraid. People who have not put their faith and trust in God should be afraid. That's why the Belgic Confession says, therefore, with good reason, the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful to wicked and evil people. It's a serious judgment that's coming. It's not a pleasant thing to think about or talk about, but it's vital that the world be warned of the wrath to come that they might flee from it. I often think of Martin Lloyd-Jones talking to someone about evangelism, and they said, how do you convince people to decide for Christ? They said, you don't convince people to decide for Christ. You preach the coming judgment. You preach what it is to be without Christ in the world, and they flee to Christ. You don't decide for Christ. You recognize in your sin you're lost, and you fly to Christ as the only name given among men by which you must be saved. There is no one else. There's no other way. He is the way to the Father alone. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. There is salvation in no other name. The wicked need to be afraid. And believers need to be filled with hope. Do you believe in him? Have you put your trust in that name which can alone save? Then you have nothing to worry about then this is what the judgment is for you. It is very pleasant and a great comfort to the righteous and the elect. It's a great comfort to the righteous and to the elect because when that storm of judgment comes, it comes to vindicate, to save, and not to sweep us away. I think there's nowhere maybe where that, that, that idea is more wonderfully balanced than in 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 10. We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness in the faith, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. All of that infliction of vengeance doesn't touch the saints at all. It's their vindication. Their righteousness is known. Their glory is made clear in the world. 
1 John 4, 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we have, may, may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. That's a true word. As he is, so also are we in the world. Jesus was hated in this world. And we are hated on his account. Uh, but he was loved by his father. And we are loved by his father on his account. And on that day, our innocence will be made known. That's why this argues against the, the purpose of the judgment being somehow to reveal all of our failings that have been forgiven and forgotten by our God. What is the pr purpose of judgment? To show his people they did not serve him in vain. To vindicate them as his own. So the evil ones will be convicted by the witness of their own consciences and shall be made immortal only to be tormented in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a hard truth. But it's a scriptural truth. Matthew 13, 41 to 43, The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Revelation 21.8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's an awful justice, but it's a perfect justice. It's the justice that's earned by an eternal offense against a holy God. Um, it's awful, but he has made a way of escape for those who are his own. And he executes his justice for them as well as for himself. But God sees what is done to his own dearly loved people. And he doesn't forget it. Think of Revelation 18, 20, and 24. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on the earth. Um, the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 2, 8 says something remarkable. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. God takes it seriously when his people are afflicted, and he will vindicate us in the end. He will show that he has kept account of our tossings. Our tears are in his bottle. They are in his book. In judgment, God says to us, his dearly loved saints, when you suffered, I saw, and I kept an account, and I didn't forget any bit of it, and I will see that you get justice. What a comfort that must have been to a church under martyrdom at the time this was written. Uh, what a comfort it is to God's people now to know these truths are always going to be the case. What is true for the righteous in contrast? How ought we to react to that day? To know that in contrast, the faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and the holy and elect angels and all tears will be wiped from their eyes. Christ will confess our names before his Father. That's an amazing thing to think about. Um, that's just a quote of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32. To have Christ confess our names 
before his Father. What glory. And that Christ will remove all of our suffering forever. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. We will receive blessed healing for all that we've suffered here below. And here again we hear that, that martyr spirit. And their cause at present condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil officers will be acknowledged as the cause of the Son of God. That was their hope. That would be acknowledged that their cause was the cause of the Son of God. That's our hope as the church as well. To have our cause acknowledged in this world as the cause of the Son of God. And that's really the answer for how the church in the midst of great persecution and suffering has been able to hold out in this world. Um, terrible things that the church has suffered and yet has stood up under it. Um, and what has been the, the support that has allowed the church to do this by the Spirit of God uh, because they know what comes in the end. As a gracious reward, the Lord will make them possess such a glory as the heart of man could never imagine. To know that no matter what we've suffered here below, heaven will make amends for all and far more than we could imagine. Um, I always found that a difficult verse as a child because I'd always think, but I can, if I imagine a lot, it's still going to be more. If I imagine more, it's still going to be more. Um, Paul is saying it's, it's, too, it's too great for us to really understand. But what it will do is it will dwarf all that we've suffered. We'll say to ourselves, no matter how bad our walk in life has been, no matter how difficult our road has been to get to glory, to say, how could I ever have doubted it was even worth it? Um, I thought, as one person said, I thought too much about my cross and not enough about my crown. If I thought more about my crown, it'd be easier to bear my cross. And that's what the Belgic Confession, I think, endeavors to do for us, to remind us that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being prepared for the glory, compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The glory is in us now. It'll just be revealed on that day. We'll see what it is to be in Christ and to have Christ in us, the hope of glory. It'll be revealed on that day. And so we as God's people should long for that end. It's a wonderful way the Belgic Confession ends. So we look forward to that day with longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May he come quickly. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we are thankful for the clear teaching of your word on the final judgment. We know ourselves to be sinners, and so it's probably only natural for us to worry about the judgment to come, knowing how we've sinned against all of your commandments and never kept any of them, and we're still inclined towards all evil, and it's so hard to believe that there could be a judgment to come that we would escape. But we are thankful for the death of your Son that covers our transgressions, for your willingness to be found by those who seek you and to incorporate us in your family. What a blessing it is to have sins covered, to have our sins thrown behind your back so that you would remember them no more, and to know that when Jesus comes, we have nothing to fear in that judgment. How we desire to see that last day come when your name will be vindicated in the earth. Your name that's become a swear word and a byword from so many, um, where you are mocked and the death of your son is mocked, 
We pray for the day when you will be vindicated in your righteousness, in your goodness, and in your holiness. And we look forward to that day when your church is vindicated as those who have properly followed the Lord Jesus Christ and put their trust in Him. We look forward to that day as well. And we look forward to the healing that you promise and to the glory that you promise us. And when these days are dark here below, may that view of glory to come sustain us and drive us forward with greater alacrity when we think about the blessedness that is coming that will be uninterrupted with you and your Son in glory forever. By that, sustain us by the power of your Spirit until that day. So hear our prayers, Lord, and help us in these dark days. Help us to long for that day to come, um, and may it come quickly. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.